You've landed on The Substance, a podcast aimed at being biblical, thoughtful, and human. Join us here every other week as we engage the culture without the culture war. I'm your host, Philip Marinello, saying (laughs) Halloween is over and we're already talking about Christmas. This is not just a holiday-themed podcast, but we really do love the series from IVP, thinking church calendar, and at the end of the year, it's kind of hard to get away from. We we considered doing an episode on Thanksgiving and (laughs) and the merits of, and kind of like, do we want to actually be promoting this? But as we're getting these new books from IVP... We don't want to just put our Christmas episode out like mid-December when we're already well into the season. This is some wonderful stuff that we think is really great to be prepared ahead of time. So um, that's what we got up for you here today. If if you're new to The Substance, uh, we're a Christian variety show where every other week we invite somebody who is smart or interesting or doing good work in a field that we appreciate and we have them talk uh, about what they are doing. Previous guests include folks like Karen Swallow Pryor, Courtney Ellis, Miles Wernz, Caitlin Chess, and Propaganda. We've got a, a nice little library. If you're new to the show, you can go check those episodes out. So today we have Emily Hunter McGowan on to talk about her new book from IVP, The Fullness of Time series on Christmas. Um, longtime listeners may recognize the series. Uh, we had um, senior editor and um, author himself, uh, Issa McCulley. His book on Lent was kind of the one that launched the series. Then we had uh, Emilio Alvarez on to talk about Pentecost. And now we've got book. This series has been such a treasure. So Emily, Dr. McGowan, she had me call her Emily, which I did appreciate. Emily is an associate professor of theology over at Wheaton College. She's also a priest and a canon theologian at the Anglican Diocese of Churches for the Sake of Others. Um, She's also an author. This is not her first book. She's got a number of books out already. Um, After this conversation, I'm interested in checking some of her other stuff out. So, yeah, this was a wonderful conversation. It, Like I said, it already feels like Christmas time is upon us. This book is a a wonderful resource to kind of focus our minds and hearts uh, as the season goes. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Emily on Christmas. Emily, welcome to The Substance. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. I'm really glad this worked out. And right away, I really appreciated it in our pre-recordings. Just call me Emily. So uh, whenever we have folks on, especially that I haven't interacted with loads and loads, I'm like, just go with it. I check. Okay. PhD. We'll, we'll go with the doctor. You're like, no, no, no. I said, okay, perfect. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So Emily, we have been, this is our, now our third episode for the IVP's fullness of time series. We love these books. I know a lot of folks who listen have purchased these and love these. And I especially like, cause yours is on Christmas, the little like shiny gold wrapping on the inside. It looks like a present. Yeah. These are, these are just Lovely is a great word. These these are beautiful little um, additions that I'm I'm very excited. Every time I get a new one from IVP, I'm like, oh, this looks so good on my shelf. I can't wait yeah. to. And they're really accessible to like the lay person. They're really I love the goal of it. Like when we had Isa on, I, I thought his heart for the series was exactly what we need, especially for folks who are a lot of people in my and our generation are reconsidering things and very interested in like, oh, like how has the church been doing things for centuries and centuries? And this series is a great uh, kind of uh, open door to that. I'm glad. Yeah. I was really excited to be a part of the series. 
So, Emily, for folks who may not be overly familiar with you, you've, ha- you've got a few books out. Kind of briefly, what's your kind of faith biography? Where do you come from? Where did you get to where you are? Um, yeah. We'd love to hear about that. Yeah, so I, I actually wasn't raised in a Christian home. I came to faith as a teenager in a Southern Baptist church in Texas and, uh, and almost immediately fell in love with theology and didn't know what that meant uh, for my life, but went on to study biblical studies as an undergrad and then seminary. Uh, again, not really sure where I was going. I just wanted to keep studying and went on to do a PhD in theology at the University of Dayton. By that point, I had realized I was going to teach. <laughs> but um, my relationship with God has always been in you know conversation with theological things and biblical studies. And so my intellectual life and my like spiritual life have always been, always been wedded. Um, but that said, I don't want to give the impression that my, um, my writing and teaching ministry is impractical or just abstract pie in the sky stuff. I actually, um, my training is in what we might call lived theology. So studying how theology is embodied in real people and real communities and I think that that's part of what made it natural for me to to write this book, because it's like, how do we live the Feast of the Incarnation? What does that mean? We have these theological ideas. But what does it look like in practice? So a lot of my writing has that same theme. Uh, it's not all the same stuff, but I, I hope there's always this, this push to let the rubber meet the road, so to speak, um, and be practical. Well, that is something that we value a ton here. We always joke like we have little playlists where you're like, okay, like because we have a variety of different topics and things we cover from different views, like nearly 100% of the theological topics we cover, we joke could all be in the like um, either embodiment or like theology of place. Like this is this is exactly probably the center of our, our theological concern here at the show. So I was I was very excited to see when I did a little bit of digging, I was like, oh, this is perfect, like perfect guest for this show and would love to – excited to talk to you about Christmas and your work, but I, I feel like we could talk about a number of uh, different things and uh, it, it would be of great value. I should have added, um, I didn't mention that in that journey I described – um, my, my husband and I both transitioned out of the Southern Baptist world into the Anglican world. And with that shift came a shift in imagination about the role of creation and then in particular sacraments. And so that's kind of important for folks to know about me and my work as well. So certainly trained in um, predominantly evangelical spaces, but I did my PhD with uh, Catholics and and then found myself in the Anglican tradition. So I I think I've learned a lot from a variety of traditions uh, within the the global church. Don't want to make this all biographical, but since uh, just for my edification, I'm very curious. So you talked about being raised, growing up spiritually in the Southern Baptist world. Your husband was a pastor there, correct? He was, yeah. When we uh, were married, he was serving as a youth pastor in an SBC church. We both graduated from an SBC undergrad uh, institution and assumed we would continue to serve in that environment. But our our theology began to shift. Uh, our views on women in ministry began to shift. And eventually it became clear that we weren't going to be able to stay in the Southern Baptist world um, 
with integrity at least uh, anymore. Sure. Yeah. Well, no, I just think that that's a very exciting and interesting transition. Like you married a pastor in the Southern Baptist and now you're both in the Anglican world and you're a priest married to a priest. You're a priest couple now. That's right. We never would have predicted that. <laughs> when we were married 20 years ago, I mean, my I was planning to be a professor, but I was going to be a Southern Baptist pastor's wife and professor. He was the pastor. I was the professor. And then over the course of the next 10, 15 years, things substantively changed. And we both came to some realizations about my calling uh, that that forced us to change. Yeah. I think that's very helpful for folks who maybe came up in a more rigid system who feel like maybe, well, my convictions are changing. I'm learning things. I'm growing. And I don't feel completely home in this system. And some of those systems were so strong on this is true. This is the only truth. And if you're outside of this, you're in trouble that there are other ways. <laughs> it's true. Thanks be to God. <laughs> I mean, the important thing is to know that that none of the, the bodies on earth right now are perfect. That's not an excuse for justifying or, or overlooking, you know, abuses or injustice, but none of the bodies are perfect, but you can in fact be Christian in other ways. And I think that's, that's hopeful uh, for people who are perhaps going through uh, some kind of deconstruction or other transition. Now, that's something that has personally in my own family given me a lot of solace. And I know a lot of our listeners um, as well responded to when we had Dr. McCulley on, Esau said something to the effect of there's great value in being being in fellowship with a body where you don't constantly have to like defend yourself and give an answer where you are. And again, not that we're not trying to have a high standard, not that we're trying to not pursue holiness and truth and things like that, but to, to not be having to constantly feeling like you are not secure in where you are. Yes. I absolutely agree with Esau on that. So, and you guys are both in the Anglican. I, we have a number of listeners who have made the transition over to regularly fellowshipping with Anglican bodies. And I flirted with it. We, I don't come from a very liturgical tradition. I've really enjoyed these books, but last year in Kansas city, there's one of the large uh, Anglican churches. I went to several of their Lenten services. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed that a lot. Been reading the NRSV for a while since we had him on. So maybe who knows, we'll see what happens, but <laughs> It's exciting to kind of be exposed to those great things. So before we do get to Christmas, I am very curious, your first book um, on families, how did that come about? Yeah. So that book is based on my doctoral dissertation. And like many oh. doctoral dissertations, it happened through an accumulation of seminar papers that after the second or third my advisor was like, so you're writing a dissertation on this, I see. <laughs> You've already sunk the time and effort. Why not? You're like halfway right. done. Right. Um, yeah. So the there were two interests of mine. And, and I, you know, all scholarship is autobiographical. So I won't pretend otherwise. I was a new mom and a PhD student. I had a four-month-old when I started the program. We went on and had two more, um, our glorious surprises over the next uh, few years. And so I was very much struggling with, you know, can I be a mom and a scholar? Can I be a mom and a theologian? What does this even look like? I'd never seen it done before. 
And so I encountered these stories of very committed and passionate evangelical women who'd given their lives to having as many children as God would give them, homeschooling them, which is very intensive as a way of life. And we're really committed to patriarchy as a, as a structure for their family. And I just sort of had this curiosity, like, are they, just for me personally, are they happier? Are they more content? Do they have less stress in their life because they're not having to wonder what they're committed to every day? And so that point of curiosity uh, then got combined with my interest in using ethnographic research methods, which are normally in the, the field of anthropology, but to use that to study people of faith and to take seriously their, their practice, their way of life as um, a place of theological reflection. So I took my curiosity and I took ethnographic research methods and got, got trained in that and spent two and a half years doing in-depth interviews with these uh, mainly mothers of uh, what were then called quiverful families and just tried to learn as much as I could about how they lived and saw themselves and their work as mothers and their children and their families, um, and then wrote a dissertation on it that turned into a book. Any, uh, and <laughs> I've gotten in trouble for this before, but any, um, what surprised you? Any kind of like nuggets and teasers of like things that either you're like, okay, no, this was what I expected or, oh, wow, like this really kind of is a surprising finding. So I'll say the thing that wasn't really, it wasn't really surprising to me, but I think it would be surprising to readers, especially if you're not familiar with Quiverful and you've just heard about it. There's an impression, of course, based on the rhetoric that it's a very patriarchal movement. And it, it is in terms of rhetoric and theology. But in practice, these households, at least the ones that I researched, are very mother-centered. Uh, the mothers, by virtue of their very full lives, educating yeah. children, are the administrators of the home. They often have like, they're really gifted actually in administration and management. And um, I think folks have the impression that it's it's a very patriarchal feeling home, if that's such a thing. But that's not in fact what I, at least what I encountered. Uh, these moms had considerable leadership and freedom and and cultural power, at least within their domestic space, and often used that um, to, to, to correct their husbands, to uh, ask them to do more work, because they had this shared goal in, in having a large family and educating them in the home. And so I think that would be unexpected for most people. It didn't really surprise me, but it it might because functionally, me. right? You think like a functional, full-on patriarchy is kind of hard to actually execute. <laughs> <laughs> well, particularly if you're going to have lots of children, yeah. Uh, because in practice, in our in our society, and this is something I get to toward the end of the book, in the United States, if you are trying to live in a like single family home with only one person working to support the family and you're doing all this with, you have loads and loads of kids. That's lots of kids and very few hands to help. And so in terms of the amount of work that it creates in the home, you end up with often an egalitarian looking marriage in terms of practice, because so much has to be done. Someone's got to do it. <laughs> yeah. That, uh, that makes sense. Well, so, that's interesting. I, I've not, like the quiverful movement as like 
proper I've only brushed up against, but I know a lot of people who have kind of functionally kind of live that out. Like they wouldn't necessarily identify that way, but I mean, I know people very close to my family that have like uh, upwards of a dozen kids. And that's just Mm kind of like, that's, that's a, that's a very strong commitment to a particular like lifestyle and uh, way of life. Absolutely. I mean, they they are, it's a thoroughgoing commitment to what they think Jesus calls them to do. And I, I think one of the things that was important to me in the book is to take that seriously and not denigrate it or just dismiss this kind of religious practice as fanaticism or something. So yeah, I try to treat it as charitably as possible. I like that. That's usually you think of dissertation topics as kind of dry. That's a very interesting one. (laughs) <laughs> well, I knew if I was going to write about it for, you know, six years or so, Oof. it would have to be very interesting. So Christmas, you you write towards the beginning that Christmas, even when you were raised in a, an irreligious home, that Christmas was always a, a special time. You could always sense the magic. What was the place of Christmas kind of in your, your heart and life as a, a young woman? Yeah. So my family of origin was actually very unstable and unsafe. I had an alcoholic father and things never, I was never able to really relax at home. He was unpredictable in his behavior, but it seemed like the holidays, oddly enough, this is not the case for everyone, but oddly enough, the holidays provided some sort of respite. And my, my mom, especially loved decorating and making everything special. She was a working mom, so she didn't always have a ton of time, but it was for whatever reason, really important to her. And so that time of year stood out to me in my experience as it just had a lot of warm memories. There were times of feeling safe, loved, surrounded by family. Um, It didn't feel quite so anxiety inducing as my regular life was. Well, and it's hard not to, I mean, like you, you absolutely talk about in the book, the commercialization and all of that. It's still hard to not get swept up, especially when you're young. It it is like an undeniably magical time. Yes. It's it's very special. Yeah. And I, I just don't think there's any working against that. (laughs) I don't, I don't think there's any way to get away from it. And so that's why one of the, one of my aims with the book is to perhaps help us reframe uh, to provide additional meaning, um, to give us resources, you know, through which to, to um, <laughs> I can't think of anything else other than beef up what already uh, exists, what we already experience. Uh, I think that it's supposed to be magical, even if we think it has a lot to do with, say, the Coca-Cola Santa Claus and gifts under the tree. Maybe so. But I think also we really do believe as Christians that God became flesh uh, in the incarnation. I mean, you can't get much more like magical than that. Um, I loved your dedication as well for your mother-in-law. Tell me about, yeah. and you talk about that in the book as well, not just in the dedication about how, as when you and your husband got together to begin your family, how the, the specialness of Christmas was a very important part of that as well. Yes. My, my mother-in-law, Susan was a Christmas fanatic and um, she just had such childlike joy about all of it. And 
<laughs> I tell a story in the book about so much so that our first our first night spent uh, first Christmas Eve night spent with her. She woke us up at like four thirty in the morning to <laughs> open gifts, and I remember like waking up. I can still kind of see the carpet in my head from the air mattress we were laying on. <laughs> And thinking, what the heck is wrong with this woman that she's waking us up so early? And um, yeah, we only had a couple Christmases with her before she passed away from pancreatic cancer. And I, I, I can't help. I think of her all the time, but especially around Christmas, she never got to meet her grandchildren. And I know how much she would have delighted in getting to celebrate with them. So, yeah, there was nobody else I was going to dedicate the book to um, than her. No, I love that. Um, yeah. Christmas with family is special. Now, I've got two little ones. I still love Christmas, but it is, it's a very special thing to share that with uh, a, a young child who, like, they can't, like, we, I can't not see the magic, but for them, it's just so apparent. It's, it's such a delight. Mm-hmm, for sure. You talk about a number of things. There's there's four main focuses you have as far as God's role in Christmas, and and the most like clear one, the foundational one is is the incarnation, the God of the Great Exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, and you highlight something that I don't, I wasn't terribly familiar with the uh, antiphon. Yeah, is that a liturgical? It is. So it's something that's sung. Um, there are lots of antiphons in the church tradition. Uh, the one that I highlight there, I just think is particularly beautiful. So when I started writing about the incarnation, I thought I'll just use that as a as a focal point. So I mean, the role of the incarnation, like we know, oh, like Christmas is when we celebrate like God coming to the world. But why? Why is that? Like, what can we buy by dwelling on it seriously in the season? How how can that both enhance? our experience of it, but also our talked about like the lived in nature, like living this among our neighbors of faith and our neighbors not of faith. Like why, why is that important? So I think it's especially important if we can, this is the the big if, if we can call it to mind throughout our day and throughout the week's um, and I think that's that's actually the, the sticking point for most of us. We know these theological truths about ourselves, about God, about the world, but we just forget them. <laughs> we, we forget them, you know, 10 minutes after we've been reminded of them. But if we can actually hold on to the idea that the word became flesh in Jesus Christ, that he has for all time joined God to creation and that God is working to make all things new, then that really can transform the most mundane things that we do in our day, uh, as well as the most meaningful things. You know, interaction with neighbors, you know, giving your kid a bath before bed, um, cheering for, you know, for a friend at their softball game. Like all of it is within this narrative in which the triune God has demonstrated that that he's making all things new and we're getting to experience little bits and pieces of that now in anticipation of the kingdom coming in the future. As I said, the challenge is to hold on to that, to truly let that color and inform everything that we're doing. Well, and one of the smaller themes 
I guess, and the the history of our show has really been that of unity. And I liked how you highlighted how how unity really is a central theme of the Christmas season. Like God sent like the incarnation was God uniting with man in a new way that hadn't happened before in like linear time in order to eternally reunite man with God to a full relationship. And that's that can easily get lost. Like that really takes effort and energy where we can maybe pass that on like a theology, like true or false test. Right. But that is, that is something, especially in the commercialization um, that can get lost. Right. Oh, for sure. And, and I think it's not just the commercialization. We're also living, you know, after the enlightenment in, you know, what historians would just call modernity, where it can feel as though, the world around us is just evacuated of God's presence. And so in our imagination, even, even if we've been raised in church, we can imagine that God is somehow absent. God only is only located in like special places like church or, you know, when I'm praying or in Bible study, but we don't think God is present and active and at work everywhere else. And I think that that, that setting in modernity where God is absent combined with the commercialization of Christmas can make it feel really empty and saccharine and, and sad, which is part of what I was trying to combat with, with the book. Well, and I mean, you read stories and stats every year, like depression and suicide always spikes during the holiday time because people that, that is more highlighted people who are, on the fringes. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Like the people who are like the least of these and, and, and the poor in spirit and the poor, like the lower rungs of folks, like they, they, they feel, they can feel that more when it's like, this is, this is the good time. Like where we're all celebrating our excess and we're giving extravagant gifts and things like that. We're celebrating grandly. And if you're not in, like a lot of the people who are doing that are maybe not doing it fully and with f- fully engaged, but then the people who can be outside of that, that can also be the temptation of, oh man, like I, I am lesser than, or I'm missing out. That's right. Yeah. And we can't ignore, at least in the Northern hemisphere, the like actual seasonal changes. It's just darker more often <sighs> and it's cold and that it does make a difference. Like we are, we are embodied creatures and the darkness and the cold, again, for those of us in the part of the world where that overlaps with Christmas, it really has an effect on you. And if you're also isolated and alone, unfulfilled in your job, struggling to make ends meet, um, yeah, you can see how that that leads to despair. Well, and just focus. I was having this conversation with somebody last week. So, I mean, in Kansas City here, it just started. You're in the Midwest as well, right? Yeah, we're Chicagoland. Chicago. I can't wait to get back to Chicago. We just had a couple... Two of our last three or four guests have been from Chicago. And I was like, I can't wait to get back out there. But I mean, sun's down at five o'clock. Mm-hmm. And if you are sucked into in, I have a great job with a lot of flexibility and I don't have a soul crushing nine to five, but even so, like the way we do work, if you're, if you're gone from your family all day long, mm-hmm. maybe doing something you don't love to kind of just get by and you don't feel like you're thriving 
and your whole day is gone and the sun is down by the time you get home. It is colder. You're getting less. If you're able to go outside, you're getting less sun. <laughs> and by the time you have any semblance of freedom, there is no sun. It's It can be a grim time. It, it absolutely is. And I, I, I think that this is the part where we people can feel, including myself, the most dissonance with the like happy, clappy, joyful Christmas time is here stuff. And I worry that when the church then, or churches, I guess I should say, also give the impression that it should only be happy, clappy, <laughs> is it life grand, that we're missing people where they really are. And by missing people where they really are, we're also missing where God is wanting to meet those people. Um, we're missing the opportunity to say, no, God is with you in the darkness, in the sadness, in the despair. You're not alone. Um, yeah, I don't want to miss out on that. So when you talk about the God of the poor, what would you say for, and I mean, again, this is broad, but for for various traditions, if we're speaking to people in an American context, which is the vast majority of the audience and most of our um, uh, climates is that. So what what does knowing truly the God of the poor during Christmas time, how, how would that affect our, our, our practice, mm-hmm. both religiously and in, and engaging in holiday stuff? Yeah. Well, it seems to me like, and this, again, I'm saying this not as someone who has worked this out and feels like I've perfected this, but it seems to me that it would change who you spend your time with. And some of us already do this. We have a tradition already of perhaps spending more time uh, with, I don't know, say um, charities or uh, shelters or whatever. But if if God really has chosen to be in solidarity with humanity through you know, this Miriam of Nazareth, this peasant woman on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, then it makes sense to seek God also, and those who are like her within our society, those who are like Jesus, the the you know, colonized Jewish peasant, um, and so it might change the way we we conduct our um, holiday activities when we do have spare time, rather than may- maybe having a glitzy party. <laughs> as much as I love parties, um, instead of having a glitzy party where we spend a bunch of money you know, with just those who we already have good relationship with. What if we got to know uh, other families down the block or uh, people who are, who are lacking, seriously lacking their material needs during the holidays? It seems like we should expect to meet God there. And the church tradition has told us through the centuries that we absolutely will. So that's one practical thing that I think it, it can change about how we celebrate and observe Christmas. What did you, was that a part of your routine when you were in the Southern Baptist world or did that for you, what was like your first real Christmas with a, a, a servant kind mm-hmm. of mindset? What was that like for you? Honestly, I think that probably didn't happen until, until shortly after I was married and it, getting married didn't have anything to do with it. It just so happened that we were reading and thinking about this with, with other people and in new ways. And I remember being exposed to the story uh, or the life of Dorothy Day and how she would encourage people to, in their homes, always have what she called a Christ room, a room that could offer hospitality to those in need. 
And my husband and I, when we were first married, um, were able to, this was in rural Texas, um, property was quite cheap. Um, we were oh, able the to, day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore, but <laughs> we were able to purchase a home that had two extra bedrooms. And I remember coming up toward, it was really Thanksgiving, um, but coming up to that time of year and thinking, it is ridiculous that we have two rooms in our house that are literally sitting empty. And so we started asking, are there people that we are meant to have join with us and and have as part of our household, either, you know, permanently or for a, a temporary period of time? And that began a tradition for, for our family of having people stay with us. It just so happened that that coincided with the holidays. And I think that's probably why... Um, I immediately thought of that, but they, we've always had single people uh, at various times of life stay with us. Some as short as, you know, six months, sometimes a couple years, often transitioning between, you know, a time of instability into a more clear path. And um, I don't know, that really shaped, that shaped how I think about my stuff. <laughs> and it really- well, I mean, a couple of years, like I was surprised when you said as little as several months and it's like, Oh man, like, yeah. Cause we think of, Oh, like let's give somebody a meal, right? Like let's give somebody right. a shower and some clothes. Sure. Um, and there's but to that, truly but- take, no, no, no. And I'm not saying that, like, this is some sort of ideal, but like, I imagine the act of taking somebody truly into your home, not just stay for a week while you're in transition, but to truly like, like bring someone into your family for like a couple months, like that's, that's time to not necessarily assimilate, but to like your patterns will overlap. Like you, you are in relationship with somebody in a way that, I mean, when I was younger, I I crashed on people's couches here and there and lived in extra rooms briefly, but like, that's not, that's not like living with the family and taking meals together and spending your evenings together. Like that is, that's a whole new level. It is. And one of the things it did for us as newly married people is it really forced us to live with integrity. (laughs) Yeah, We have people watching us, not, not in a like bad way, but just sure we were around people. They knew that we were, that he was a pastor and we were like, professional holy people, so to speak, (laughs) you know, and so there was no possibility of bifurcating our life into, you know, church life and and home life or church life and personal life. Um, Yeah, it was very uh, formational for us. And I would say on on this topic, one other thing that I, that you did mention in the book, and I, I appreciate like at a certain point, I was like, well, what about how can we, or what would be your encouragement rather? Like, you don't need to have like, here's your script, but what would be a good way to think about in the West um, while it is simultaneously true that because of a lot of the systems we live in, like people are living through hardships and hard times, but we also do have a lot simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So how can we encourage, like truly, actually, genuinely encourage prosperous people to maybe think about these things without being obnoxious or self-righteous about it. Because once, I mean, a lot of us have probably gone through that. I, I probably maybe more than others in ways. Like when you come to various points of 
um, enlightenment or you see things, you're like, oh, like I really need to tell everybody about this, especially the ones who like are like really not or, or to me are really not living this out. So how can we encourage our churches and the people in our communities positively towards this without a without going overboard? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this this is hard. I'm not sure I have the the answer to this because this has to be worked out in context, doesn't it? Like it depends on your particular, you know, calling in your community, the people that you have there, your experiences and the rapport or lack thereof that you have with them. I think one of the things, one of the factors would be just renewing our familiarity with what Jesus himself says about our stuff and about wealth, uh, particularly he calls mammon. And mm-hmm. it's it's pictured as in competition with God's kingdom. And I think you can teach, preach, however you want to talk about that, meditate on that and receive that as a challenge. And then also the way Paul talks about wealth in, in the New Testament epistles. Um, you can see the example in the book of Acts for how the people of God are known to live And then I think to avoid it being overwhelming for individuals, it's, it helps to start, I think, in terms of a group, (laughs) what could we as a community commit to? Because I think the hard part is we sort of imagine, all right, well, I have to restructure my budget or I have to do X, Y, or Z. And certainly there might be individual callings there, but I don't know. I feel like we can be more courageous and more creative as we work together and we say, okay, how might we improvise by the Holy Spirit's guidance, faithfulness to this gospel calling within our current environment and with our current limitations? Because not everyone can do everything. That's true. If you've got little kids, you have limitations in terms of your bandwidth that others don't have. My goodness. I feel bad. Like (laughs) I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old and we try to stay active, but I I always do feel bad sometimes when they're like, oh, can you make it to this thing? And I'm just like, can can we? I don't know. (laughs) That's a real thing. And to pretend otherwise is just not fair to people. Um, And so we're all at different phases. We all have different challenges. We all have different, let's be clear, like wounds that need healing. Yeah. So I don't, this is why I don't think we need a one size fits all sort of admonition for how to obey, how to respond to the gospel's call in this area. But I do think it should be part of our discernment as communities, whether we're talking about small groups or churches. Um, and Christmas is a good time to take that up again. And I love the uh, talking about like doing that together mm-hmm. because we are a very um, individualized culture. And a lot of times our our faith practices and our faith communities can very much lean more individualistic, which mm-hmm. obviously like, yes, like we're made in the image of God. Like we have value as individuals, but I mean, we, we lose a lot when we don't think corporately. Sure. Well, and and just the one thing that I'll add is it seems to me that the only way that any sort of regular practice of dispossession, so giving up your stuff, the only way that a regular practice of that is going to make sense and, and be actually livable for real people today 
is if we have a community that we trust is going to care for our needs if and when they come up, right? Like if we don't have a community that we trust is going to provide for our material needs, if we find we are without, we're not going to give. And so it creates this cycle, right? This this cycle of hoarding. Yeah. Like you don't want to be selfish, but if we're like, well, if I'm generous and I actually do get hard up, like, can I really go to anybody? Like who's going to have my back? Exactly. And so we, it actually requires God's people (laughs) to, to be that community to each other. So that generosity becomes a way of life rather than a one-off that happens, you know, one or once or twice a year. You talk about creation and redemption and like little creations. And I, I thought it was very interesting that you tied that the theme of that into decorations for Christmas talk was that when did that come to you and kind of how did, how did you initially kind of um, break that down? Like how, how did that come? So the, the thought about decoration being linked to, uh, you know, creation and recreation or creation and redemption actually came from a book that I stumbled across through, I think it may have been a tweet back when Twitter was called Twitter. Back when Twitter was good. The good old days. Uh, from Fleming Rutledge. And she said something about this book called Approaching Christmas by a woman named Jane Williams. And she has a chapter in here about decorations that just blew my mind. She connected decorations to, it's, well, I, I cite her in the book, uh, the decorations of the temple. And that just got my mind going. And I thought, oh my gosh, why do we do this again? Is it just to sell things? I mean, for some, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. But is there something deeper perhaps going on here? And, and that's, that's what made the connection to, well, we're, we're really making these things sacred. We're saying these things are meaningful, that they are worthwhile. And for Christians that they are going to be redeemed, not redeemed fully yet, but one day they will be. And, um, that just put, for me at least, put Christmas decorations in a whole new light. I really love that. Any thoughts on how do you and your husband like disciple your children in that with your, I don't know how, like in your home, in your church, I don't know how, what your responsibilities are as far as church decorations, but as you decorate your home mm-hmm. and whatever the responsibility level is decorating the church, how does how does that go together? Like purposefully like using that as, not like a ham-fisted teaching opportunity, but like the whole Deuteronomy, like at all times, like how are, how, how are you and how ought we to think about potentially as the season? Cause this is um, going to get published before Christmas time starts proper. Cause I wanted to kind of get this out there early. Like how can we be thinking about purposefully discipling our young ones and encouraging the other saints around us? Right. So I got to be honest with you, this connection I only made writing the book and my kids are now 14, 13 and 10. Yeah. You have like, I saw some of your <laughs> Halloween pictures. I was like, she's like, she's got kids, but not like baby yeah, kids. So I, I think I actually sort of missed the window to inculcate this. I mean, I've said something about it now as we're preparing, cause they're already asking, when are we going to get out the decorations? And so I've said a few things about, about it. Um, but once they get to this age, you know, adolescent teenagers, they can like really sniff out sermons, uh, you know, <laughs> <Christmas> sermons. <laughs> so I have to, you know, play it cool. 
Um, I imagine when it's time to decorate, we'll probably talk a little bit about it. As far as our home is concerned, we've actually never framed it in this way. And I'm, I'm excited about other people being able to benefit from that idea. For church, our, our little church, we have a little like um, little church plant here. We haven't done Christmas decorations before, but I have been part of churches that have a whole um, like liturgical ceremony for greening the church where they, they intentionally liturgically place uh, decorations in the worship space. And they combine that with like readings of scripture and prayer uh, to kind of give those things that we just think of as fun visual effects, uh, you know, the, the theological meaning that they deserve. Um, and so I think that could be something practical that churches can do rather than having a committee come in like on Saturday morning and put it up in secret, make it something the whole church does together and to provide some guidance as to why and and what it means and what it's for. Because, I mean, I've thought a lot about in the last few years with our young boys, just I want to have traditions that mean something. And mm-hmm. I, I think that that is a really cool. And I mean, religiously, I, I definitely, I was really, I really enjoyed last year going to our, the local uh Anglican Church for Lent. I'll probably pop in and just kind of see, pop back in uh, St. Aidan's here in Kansas City and just kind of see how some of these services go. Like I I really do think that there is a lot of value to the liturgy. What you just said, like tying, tying the things we do to their meaning because a lot of times those two, like, like you said, why do we put up a tree? Like putting up a, um, like a nativity set, like, that can just be like, oh, like this is like a teaching, a visual teaching aid. But I mean, it doesn't have to just be that. Like, right. it, it can be a lot more than that. And I, uh, that that's very exciting for me. So liturgically speaking, for those of us who are maybe not, um, who haven't experienced liturgical Christmas services, how do they go? Like, what's your, what do you get most excited for in the liturgical Christmas services? Well, so in. In our tradition, there is the possibility of doing Christmas Eve and Christmas Day services. A lot of churches don't have the resources to do both, which I understand. Um, But I actually love the combination of the two, even though as a pastor's family, it requires more work of us. But the gathering on Christmas Eve, I mean, there's to me, there's just no beating the like aesthetic of all the lit candles while we sing a closing hymn um, and and acknowledge the coming of the light of God in Christ. That is probably my favorite moment, even if I have memories of almost burning myself or a child um, (laughs) experience. Um, But then Christmas day is always very, I shouldn't say very, it's, it's often sparsely attended because it's Christmas day. And, and I get that, no judgment, but I sort of love the simplicity of it because it's sparsely attended. The, the homily or the sermon is often very short. Last year, my husband actually read a homily from St. John Chrysostom so as not to have to prepare another sermon. And then, you know, we, we sing a few Christmas songs and say some prayers and we go home. And I actually love the simplicity of that. We didn't have musicians last year. 
it just reminds you that like you can worship just by gathering the people of God, <laughs> attending to scripture, attending to prayer. If you do Eucharist, having, you know, celebrating in that way. But it doesn't have to be all the smells and bells. And at Christmas, you can feel this pressure to do that. Christmas Eve services, I think, especially have that um, that pressure. But a simple Christmas Day service, I think, for me at least, over the past several years, has been the most, I hate the word impactful, but that's the one that's coming to mind. <laughs> but it's had the most, um, or left the heaviest impression, that that God does, in fact, come to us in the mundane, in the normal and not in the 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 flash and the smoke uh, and this you know smells and bells. I really, again, appreciated was uh, pleasantly surprised when you talk about how Christmas is the time of like life and light, and as a part of the Christmas story, anybody who has any uh, proximity to it knows about like Herod's massacre of the children. You tied that to a lot of our modern day, like the, the, the gun violence crisis, like in, as a church, we've had a few guests, um, recently Caitlin Shess, I think was the most recent one talking about churches trying to positively, um, get engaged politically. Mm-hmm. And, and Christmas really is not a time where I think about politics, but looking at all of these things together, holistically, what does, how can we think about justice in that arena in the Christmas season? Well, I feel like you've you've already sort of pointed us in the right direction. I think that the recognition that Jesus, you know, as soon as God appears in the flesh, the darkness rises up and tries to 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 snuff him out. I think that 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 forces us to pay attention to the ways in which the powers and principalities in our world are trying to spread death and darkness. And so that can be in many arenas. Obviously, again, I think this is contextual. But, you know, I think about the communities just over the past year that have experienced the kinds of mass shootings that um, that I reference in the book. It seems like Christmas would be a natural time in which to acknowledge that those of us who are in Christ and, and who have um, submitted to his lordship, even from the cradle, Right, even as a toddler fleeing Herod, would then be asked to take up a place of solidarity with those who find themselves similarly threatened by violence and by darkness and death. And again, that can take many forms, but it seems like we are a people of life and light, and therefore there should be some sort of embodied resistance to the things that work against that. And one way that could be is is certainly um, trying to move the needle in terms of, of gun violence prevention. But there may be other ways too, depending on your your particular community. Well, and I love that so much because in a, in a deeply, sadly, heartbreaking, frustrating way, a lot of times in a broad brush, a lot of the things you see like the politically engaged church folks or some of the loudest folks are not the ones advocating for and identifying with mm-hmm. victims. So I was I was very encouraged by that and I'm hoping to be a part of that and see that more. And also like there is that going on as well. Right. So to be encouraged that sometimes the loud 
brash uh, folks who are maybe not living in the most Christ-like way are the ones getting the most uh, bandwidth and clicks and mm-hmm. like rage and upset. And like me being upset by something like that drives traffic and the algorithm knows that. So sometimes those are the things being put out, but an encouragement to both be that in my community embodied, like where I am physically, but also to know that others are doing that as well. And to be in solidarity and to lift them up and to rejoice that. Right. So, I mean, that's, that's being salt and light, right? Like we want to say, Hey, like we have good news. Like we want to be like, we want to have something to offer the world and that's, I, I feel like what could be a better testimony in that arena? Like that's where you would think like that's where the church should be engaged. Absolutely. Yes. Anything else in particular to whether you're a liturgical or non-liturgical, what, what would you recommend if somebody's like, I, I want to be more um, focused other than, Hey, check out the book. We'll plug the book. It's nice that the book <laughs> is already out and available. Um, are you, do you have an audio book? Did, did that come out yet? I got to record the audio book. How was that? It was so fun. I've never done it before. Uh, I was so glad they let me do it. So yes, there is a, a recording. You can get it, I guess, on like Audible or other places where they sell audiobooks. I can't wait for that to come to Hoopla. I'm I'm very excited. I've loved the whole, again, these are great little, nice little, what's this, about 115 pages, 120 pages. Yeah. Like these are very digestible. I think that especially since it's out now, I think this would be a great little like little study and get together with some small groups, some people I'm, I look for. Have you gotten any or other than – so, I mean, we talked about this also before. The friend of the show, Courtney Ellis, I was talking to her yesterday about this. She's very excited for the book. Have you gotten any uh, from pastors or churches that have already kind of started to engage? Have you gotten any feedback yet personally? Not from pastors or churches that are doing it as a group. I've gotten individual feedback, which has been really encouraging. Um, I think my favorite so far is actually a friend of mine and a colleague here at Wheaton, Tim Larson, who literally edited like this giant book on Christmas and who Ooh. wrote a lovely endorsement. Um, and and so it meant a lot coming from him that he that he thought I had done well with the history and theology. But I, I agree with you. I think that the 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 days between Christmas Day and uh, you know, those twelve days of Christmas can be easy to, to lose in the fog of visiting family and, you know, gifts and shopping or whatever, returning gifts maybe. Um, but I think that that maybe starting the book before then and then finishing it up during that time could be a useful way to just remember what it's all about uh, and not get lost uh, in the midst. Yeah. Well, thank you for this book. I'm excited that we have it. Uh, I hope to probably give it to some people here this season and just kind of hear listeners. If you get the book, tweet or whatever, I don't know if Twitter's yeah. still going to be around in a month or two by the time Christmas is here, send her an email or a DM, let yeah. her know uh, yeah. how much you appreciated it. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so Emily, we talked about this substance shout outs. What, what have you been reading? What have you been watching? What have you been mm-hmm. listening to? What have you been enjoying as culture, art, resource, what, and you can give me a couple, if there are a couple things that you've really loved lately, what would you commend to the audience that you've, uh, has enriched your life lately? So lately it's really been like about six months or so. I have been reading the work uh, of uh, C. Renee Padilla, who is a Latin American evangelical theologian. 
And uh, I, I wish I had been introduced to his work earlier. He's written some beautiful stuff on the gospel and the kingdom of God, and it has revitalized my interest in that aspect of theology, and it's also already begun to inform my teaching. I think it's really practical, too. So even people who are not professional theologians or pastors would benefit a lot. Um, he's got a book called Mission Between the Times that has been especially uh, helpful to me. So I'd, I'd certainly recommend him. I've also been working on a um, a review of my colleague Amy Peeler's book, Women and the Gender of God. That's I've seen that on my feed lately. I'm I'm excited yeah. to check that out sometime. Well, and what's what the overlap that I have with it is that she spends a lot of time in the Annunciation um, narrative in Luke. So thinking about Christmas themes, mm-hmm. um, Mary and Jesus feature prominently in the book, and it's it's really fantastic, very lucidly written. So yeah, it's it's it is academic, but she writes so clearly that it's very accessible for for regular people. F- more more like in the fun side of things. I don't laugh at me, but I have never watched before the like 1995 or 96 Pride and Prejudice from BBC. Oh, nice. And I know that's <laughs> very late to the game, but I'd never seen it before. And I had, a, oh, it was over our little fall break. We had like a three day fall break. And I. It's I, long. It is long, six one hour episodes, but it was delightful. It was just delightful. I enjoyed that so much. Um, you know, in a world of like so much darkness and cynicism, it was just really fun to enjoy a, a, a witty, rather innocent story. Uh, certainly it has its limits culturally, but I really enjoyed that. Are there any um, uh, movies or books in the McGowan household that get returned to during Christmas time? Do you guys have any of those like you always read or you always watch together that you always look forward to? Yeah, we actually have bins. This is one of our traditions. We have bins, one of books and one of movies. And we have a a few Christmas playlists that only come out during Christmastide. And it makes it really special because you don't get them any other times. And we all, even now with the teenagers, we just kind of mob those bins when they come out. And so it's some of the standards. Of course, there's like, you know, How the Grinch Stole Christmas but we've also gotten some really beautifully illustrated stories of the nativity. Um, I'm trying to think. We have one that we read on the Feast of St. Nicholas, which I know isn't properly in the Christmas season yet. But uh, it's um, St. Nicholas and the, I think it's the nine coins or the seven coins. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's really I'm great. I'm familiar with that. I, feel, I, I read it once. I, it's not like a regular of mine, but I enjoyed that. Yeah. And then movies... I'm really the one who loves the Christmas movies. <laughs> so my kids and my husband just they have, humor you. They humor me. The one that I have grown to appreciate, I did not like as a child, but I have learned to love is It's a Wonderful Life. Nice. And now I make them watch it with me at least once uh, over the, the Christmas break. Uh, my girls have always loved White Christmas, which I don't fully understand, but I watch that <laughs> with them. And um, what's the other one? Oh, of course, Will Ferrell and Elf. You know, like I think we're finally going to show uh, our boys that this year. I'm so excited. 
Yeah. I mean, so it's, fun. it's so goofy and silly, but we need some of that sometimes. So we do. Well, Emily, thank you for your time. This has been great. I'm glad to get to meet you and know you. I really love this book. It's, Thanks. I'm so grateful for this whole series. Did you, um, was this announced at the beginning or was this one of the newer, cause Christmas that had to have been on the initial slate of the fullness of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. When uh, Esau approached me and said, do you want to do Christmas? I immediately said, yes. <laughs> I was like, I have been training for this since I was a child. <laughs> yes. please. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm very glad to have it. And, uh, yeah, I can't wait to get get it into more people's hands. So Emily, I'll have a link to the book in, in the show notes here. Where can folks find you? Um, what would be the best way for folks to connect with you and your work? Yeah, so I do have a website, emilymcgowan.com. Um, if you wanted to contact me about coming to speak at your church or retreat or whatever, you can use the contact form there. It goes to my personal email address. I'm also on the site formerly known as Twitter <laughs> and uh, Instagram and Facebook. Is that it? Oh, oh, and threads. That's the only oh, nice. extra one. Are I you threading? Uh, yeah, trying, trying. Nice. The The habit for the site formerly known as Twitter is hard to break. Uh, it is, and it stinks because it's like that was such a wonderful re- – that's actually how we connected. I was very grateful like whenever – IVP announces a new thing. I feel like authors typically and professors are more on Twitter because it used to be more of a uh, engaging of ideas kind of platform. So that's usually where I'm like, hey, love to have you on the show if it made sense. And we've got a lot of great guests from Twitter, but it's it's a little bit more challenging right now. And we don't know if Threads or Blue Sky or any of these other things are going to actually work. So it's interesting times. Very much so. Yeah. Well, all right. I will put your links in the show notes there. And just once again, thank you for your time. Really enjoyed uh, getting to talk with you. So that was my conversation with Dr. McGowan, with Emily. Um, uh, had a really good time talking with her. Uh, I love this series from IVP, this fullness of time. Um, it's been really encouraging to me and appreciate all of you guys who have checked it out and shared your thoughts. I think this is a really great resource, especially for those of us who maybe didn't get a whole lot of exposure to the church calendar and various forms of liturgy growing up, just kind of being exposed to this is this is our our some of the legacy of our faith. And I know some of us have um, tapped into various elements. So really love this conversation. If you like this and want to get more of the fullness of time, like I said, we previously have had on Esau McCulley for his book on Lent. We had um, Emilio Estevez on for Pentecost. And we, we, didn't, we weren't able to get on the schedule. I don't think uh, Dr. Warren, Tish Harrison Warren, who did Advent, is really doing um, podcasts. But uh, last year we did have Betty Dickinson, who also put a really great book out uh, on Advent um, with IVP actually too. So we're keeping it in the IVP family. If you want to check that out last year, last um, late November or December, I think we actually did that one in December last year we did Advent. So um, yeah, we're trying to get a little bit ahead of that this year. But yeah, if you want to check out Lent, Pentecost and Advent, those are also in the library. So check those out. 
and enjoy. If you want to get this book, a couple things. So we're going to have links in the show notes to purchase it. I believe IVP has some different sales going on right now. Um, You'll find that information in the show notes if you want to purchase it from IVP. Um, uh, If you want to listen to Emily read her book in her own words, um, you can get it on Audible, various audio things. But if you have uh, Hoopla, a lot of local libraries will have Hoopla as a free service. You can listen to it for free uh, on Hoopla in her own words. And you can also listen to the Advent book. I am finishing up um, Emily's uh, book right now, and then I've got Advent up next. They're about like two, two and a half hours of listening. Um, so those are fantastic in the show notes, but you guys can also be excited to look for on our social media in the week or so following the release of this episode. If you're listening early or when it drops, um, you can check our social media feed for chance to win some copies. We're going to have some giveaways for, uh, Christmas as well. And maybe I wonder if we can do an advent Christmas, uh, double all. I'll reach out to the publisher and see if we can give away both. Um, so there's that. Check out the socials for that. Um, we're going to have links for Emily's work in the show notes as well. Follow her. Encourage her. If you heard about her on the show and you check out her book or her various works, say, hey, really enjoyed your episode on The Substance. That really goes a long way to help us. Um, another great free way to help The Substance is just to share the show. Um, we don't do topical things like Christmas in order to get shared, but if you if this uh, material is encouraging or exciting to you and it helps you out, share it. Say, hey, just heard a great episode on Christmas from The Substance. Share it with your friends, family, on your various social medias. That always helps. And if you want to financially help, you can join our Patreon community where uh, patrons can vote on future episodes and we'll get some exclusive content. Um, last episode we had was Sarah Welch Larson on the original Alien. And patrons can get access to an episode on her book that's on the entire Alien franchise. We're going to have future um, episodes coming as well. They're not going to be necessarily every other week like the main show, but whenever we're able to, um, whenever we have uh, bonus material that doesn't necessarily make sense on the feed, uh, the folks who are supporters of the show will have access to that as well. But if monthly support like a Patreon, like three, five, ten bucks a month, whatever, is not your bag and you still appreciated the show and want to show us a little bit of love, you can do that on Cash App at dollar sign the substance pod. So there's that. If you want to get your voice on the show, maybe give us some feedback, tell us what you liked, tell us what you didn't like, have recommendations for guests or topics or books or films, things like that, you can email us a voice note at thesubstancepod at gmail.com. If you want to get your voice on the show, giving us your feedback, that's always fun. So thesubstancepod at gmail.com, email us a voice note, preferably in the 90 second range. That would be great. And we'd love to hear from you. Really appreciate all you guys. Um, Hope you guys have a wonderful holiday season coming up here. I've been your host, Philip Marinello, and we'll see you again next time on The Substance. And we'd love to hear from you. That was a long pause. I'll give you all that in one. We we don't have a crazy budget, but we do try to be a polished show. So if there's anything... If, if God really has chosen to be in solidarity with humanity through, you know, this Miriam of Nazareth, this peasant woman, 
on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, then it makes sense to seek God also and those who are like her within our society, those who are like Jesus, the the you know colonized Jewish peasant. Um, don't laugh at me. <laughs> 